I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hi, John. Hi, John. How are you? I am doing all right. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Um, I'm finishing up my time here up in upstate New York at the Fort Salem Theater. Uh, we just opened next to normal. Um, and of course, by the time this airs, we will have closed next to normal. But it's actually been a lot of fun. I mean, relatively, it's, you know, it's not exactly a bright and cheerful comedy, but the community uh, support has been fantastic. The, the performances have been just absolutely first rate and it has been probably one of my best experiences that I've had in the last several years with theater. That is fantastic to hear. So what are we talking about today, John? So today we are talking about the 1983 production of La Caja Fall with music and lyrics by Jerry Herman with a book by Harvey Firestein. La Caja Fall is based on a play of the same name by Jean Poirier. Akasha Fall opened on August 21st, 1983 at the Palace Theater and closed on November 15th, 1987 after playing 1,761 performances. Lacage was directed by Arthur Lawrence with musical direction by Don Pippin and choreography by Scott Salmon. The original cast included Jean Barry as Georges, George Hearn as Alban, John Wiener as Jean-Michel, Leslie Stevens as Anne Dindon, Jay Garner as Edouard Dindon, and Merle Louise and Mademoiselle Dindon. La Caja Folle was nominated for nine Tony Awards and won six, including Best Musical, Best Original Score, and Best Book of a Musical. La Caja Folle opens with Georges, the master of ceremonies at the drag nightclub, La Caja Folle, welcoming the audience to the club and introducing them to the chorus line, Le Cajel. Georges and his partner Albin have been living happily for many years in an apartment above the club. Albin is a star drag queen of La Caja Folle and performs under the alias of Zaza. As Albin prepares to perform down in the club, Georges' son, Jean-Michel, arrives at their apartment with the news that he is engaged to Anne Dindon. Georges is not terribly excited by this news, but Jean-Michel urges his father to believe that he is in love with Anne. But there is a snag. Anne's father, Edouard Dindon, is the head of the Tradition, Family, and Morality Party. Monsieur Dindon's goal is to shut down all of the local drag clubs. Naturally, Georges has a problem with this. Of course, Anne's parents want to meet their future son-in-law's parents. Jean-Michel begs Georges to tell Alban to make himself scarce when Anne's parents come for dinner. He also asks Georges to redecorate the apartment to make it more subtle. Finally, Jean-Michel asks Georges to invite Sybil, his birth mother who has been totally absent from his life, to dinner in place of Alban. Alban returns to the apartment after his performance, and Georges takes him on a walk to the Promenade Café, where he tries to prepare Alban for the emotional blow of Jean-Michel's requests. 
Before Georges can break the news to Albin, Albin suggests that they get back to Lacage so that they aren't late for the next performance. While Albin takes the stage as Zaza, Georges and Jean-Michel quickly redecorate the apartment. As Albin is changing between numbers, he notices the two taking his gowns out of the apartment and asks what they are doing. Georges finally tells Albin what is happening with Jean-Michel. Instead of erupting in rage, Albin remains silent and heads back on stage, where they sing a song in defiance of Jean-Michel, stating, I am what I am, and furiously throwing his wig at Georges before departing the stage. Act two begins the following morning. Georges finds Albin at the Promenade Cafe and apologizes to Albin, suggesting a compromise where Albin dresses as a masculine Uncle Al for the dinner. Albin is still upset, but reluctantly agrees to this. With the help of the cafe owners, Georges is able to teach Alban how to be masculine. Back at the redecorated apartment, Georges introduces Uncle Al to Jean-Michel. Jean-Michel doesn't like this idea and expresses his dislike for Alban's lifestyle. Georges responds angrily, reminding Jean-Michel of what a good mother Alban has been to him. Suddenly, news arrives that Sybil will not be coming and then Anne's parents arrive for dinner. Hoping to save the day, Alban dresses as Jean-Michel's mother. In the commotion of all that has gone on, the dinner gets burned, forcing the group to head to a local restaurant owned by a friend of Georges and Alban, Jacqueline, for their meal. At the restaurant, Alban is recognized as Zaza and asked for a song which he reluctantly agrees to sing. As the song builds, everyone in the restaurant begins to participate, and swept up by the excitement of it all, Alban rips off his wig, revealing his true identity. Back at the apartment, the Dindons are begging Anne to call things off with Jean-Michel, but she is in love with him and refuses to leave. Meanwhile, Jean-Michel, realizing what a colossal asshole he has been, apologizes to Alban and begs for forgiveness which is granted. The Dindons are about to leave, but they find their exit blocked by Georges and Albin's friend Jacqueline, who has arrived to the club with the press, who are eager to catch a photograph of the notoriously anti-homosexual Dindon in the presence of Zaza. Georges and Albin propose that if Anne's parents will let her and Jean-Michel get married, they will sneak the Dindons out of the club. The Dindons begrudgingly accept. Georges gets Le Cajel, to dress Anne, Jean-Michel, and the Dindons up as members of the chorus. As a part of the review, everyone is able to escape right out from under the paparazzi's nose. La Cajafol concludes with Albin and Georges alone together, professing their love for one another. So recently we were able to talk about another show by Jerry Herman, the behemoth, you know, the monolithic Hello Dolly. And one of the things we talked about in that is how that is for for us in certain ways kind of the pinnacle of Herman's like output that you know is is a great thing to say in the moment but Lacage is not a lesser show than Dolly and and yes Dolly was more popular Dolly was more omnipresent but in its own way, this show has its charm, it has its heart, and it's not a lesser show. It's just a different one. And I think it's much to uh, Jerry Herman's credit 
as a composer, how different the music for Lacage sounds from the music of Hello Dolly. Not to say that uh, being able to write different sounding music makes you a better composer, but the fact that he is able to musically embody these two styles so completely, like the music of Hello Dolly is utterly perfect for its setting. And so is the music of Lacage. It is really, it, it shows his versatility and it shows his really mastery of the craft in a, in a beautiful way to kind of compare them as closely as we have here. Yeah, I mean, and it, it's funny because each has their own ideas of like their big show numbers whether it's, you know, Hello Dolly, the title song of the show, or I Am What I Am for this show, or any of the, the scenes in Lacage, they could have been, it would have been the easiest thing in the world for Herman to write them in a similar style, because they're big, they're showy, they're show numbers, it's fine. But they're so completely different. Um, ultimately, with Herman really focusing in on tailoring to the story, to tailoring his music to the idea and the heart and the soul of each individual production, it makes each production stronger on its own. And it, it, it's something we don't see often. You know, we've talked about shows that are not necessarily one note, but very similar, or talked about composers who, you know, have written multiple shows and they have a very distinctive style. I think ultimately it's to Herman's credit that he can be a chameleon in this way and tailor the music to that property. Yeah, I mean, we mentioned in our rundown that uh, this musical won Best Musical. It won over Sunday in the Park with George, a Sondheim show. And Sondheim is one of those composers who I think of in contrast to Herman, who is showing his ability to do kind of different musical styles. A Sondheim musical sounds like a Sondheim musical. It's great, it's brilliant. I'm not trying to knock Sondheim here, but it doesn't really matter if it's Into the Woods, Sunday in the Park with George, uh, name another Sondheim show. They all kind of have that sort of distinctive sound. I think it's cool to see someone on the flip side of that. Absolutely. Um, and I won't lie, I love this show. Um, it, is on, it is on the proverbial bucket list of shows to do because not only is it showy and it's flashy and it's got some great orchestrations, it's honestly, the, the, the orchestra books for this show are, are, in my mind, one of the last kind of great holdovers from the Golden Age orchestration, which is saying something because this show was written in 83. And, you know, at this point, we're firmly entrenched in the mu mega musical era. But that's, that's what this show is to me. It's, it's, a, it's a callback. It's a love letter. It, it's got so much tied into this Golden Age ideal. Um, and I just, I love this show. That being said, this show does benefit from where it's being produced. Um, you, when we were talking before, you were talking about how your only experience with this show is in a community theater setting. And I would definitely argue that this show benefits from its opulence, that it's hard to do this show on a shoestring budget. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's absolutely true. Uh, you know, I think back to our recent conversation with Jessica talking about props and how that uh, really brings everything to life and creates the environment. This show has a lot of environments that have to be brought to life. You have the, the club, you have their apartment, you have their apartment in two different versions. You have cafes, you have restaurants, there's all these different settings and none of them are not kind of upscale fancy places. They all need a certain level of pizzazz to bring them to life and to make them feel real. And that 
not to say that community theaters can't do that, but what that generally equates to is money. And money is usually something that community theaters are trying to save however they can. Right. And, you know, I hope we were able to bring it through in our rundown, but this concept, I mean, the, college, the, the, the theater is not this seedy rundown dive bar of a drag club. This is an incredibly successful large space that's opulent and beautiful and everything that's in its place and the decoration is planned out and and the show needs to it it's based on that it needs to be representative of that um i mean ultimately uh the dindons don't reject at first um alban and Georges and jean michel because they're poor because let's be honest they're not it has literally everything to do with his opposition to their life and there needs to be that that setting kind of of opulence that setting of of luxury that is very difficult to pull off unless you really think through it exceptionally well yeah i think you would agree that probably the strongest number from this show is the big anthem I am what I am performed by Albin at the end of act one. It is undoubtedly the big hit from the show. And I think it is deservedly so. And I think we should take a second to talk about it because it is a damn good song. Well, and it's funny because it's, it's not a reprise per se, but the show opens with uh, we are who we are, which is a club number in Lacage the theater and it's sung by the Kajels and it's actually it it's funny because the opening number reminds me a bit of the opening number in Cabaret where we're going through this club number and we're introduced to various you know various chorus members and we're this and and there's also like opportunities for uh, Georges to to riff a little bit to to ad lib a little bit um, I remember seeing a production when I was very young where um, the the George was able to riff and even include like the band in it. And at one point he, he looks down and he goes, oh, and then there's the band and oh, there's X and he plays the flute. And of course it was all done for laughs and, and you know, and it's, it, it's very, this, it, it, it strikes me as this very cabaretish thing. But then it, it's brought back at the end of Act One, and instead of we are what we are, it's I am what I am. But it becomes this intriguing mix of a torch song and almost an 11 o'clock number, which is weird on its surface because it's in the wrong place. Like it is in no way positioned to be a, a, an 11 o'clock number. But it ends up being this rousing anthem, this, this kind of tome of defiance and, and affirmation in who Alban is. And it just, inspiring isn't necessarily the right word, but it's the one I'm going to use because it's like, damn it, I'm Alban and I'm here and this is who I am. And if you're not going to accept that, well then screw you. It also has the, the, this one totally not apropos of anything. It has this one lick that has been in the revival put in clarinet, but I actually went and looked it up in the original. It's in the violins that is basically impossible to play. 
I mean, it is, it's funny. And if you listen to any recording, it's right when he gets into the up-tempo part of the song. There is this, this like, line going in the revival. It's in the clarinet. In the original, it's in the violins. And it's just like, how the hell do you play it? I think you're absolutely right about it being, I think inspiring is a good word. And it's, it's demanding that he be accepted for who he is, because that is who he is. And he should be accepted for that. But one of the things that I love about this song is the slow build and that it doesn't just start from anger and rage because, you know, we mentioned it's coming out of the moment where uh, he's finding out what uh, George and Jean-Michel are doing. They're telling him his plan. They're, they're telling him why they don't want him to be present. Rage would not be an inappropriate reaction at that moment, but that's not what happens. And it, I don't want to say it catches you off guard as an audience member, but the unexpected is always engaging and it draws you in and it focuses what has been kind of a huge and dramatic show down to actually a very, very intimate moment where we have one character addressing us, speaking softly, moving slowly. And I think it makes what follows at the end of the song even more powerful than it if it had just been an explosion right out of the gate. Oh yeah, I'm right there with you. And it's really cool that it's mirrored in the orchestration. So the 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 song, the act one finale, actually starts completely a cappella. As you you were talking about this building idea, it starts completely a cappella. Then it's the piano and the clarinet. Again, just this very intimate, almost trio-esque between the voice and the two instruments. And then he brings in a little bit more and then it gets a little bit faster and he brings in a little bit more and we don't get this big dramatic flourishy finish until really the very end when all of a sudden we're at our fastest tempo where, you know, he's had the, the uh, I am what I am and he's, he's holding this last note. And then we finally have the full brass come in with their, their flourishes and their, and their fanfare and everything. And it's just, it's this tear up and it. You're right. It's never about rage, but to be fair, and this is a credit to Jerry Herman and um, Harvey Firestein's book, Alban is never written as, so. He's he is written as someone who is passionate, who is probably the classical definition of a diva, but there's never, it's never put in his character at all that there is rage. Well, I mean, he he loves Jean-Michel. He views himself as a parent to Jean-Michel and he's treated him like a son. And this is a, this is a huge betrayal as from, from Alban's perspective. Right. And the fact that he stays true to that and stays true to his character in this defining moment for him is just, it makes the show better for me. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Is there anything else you'd like to say about this show? No, I have I have talked the things I want to talk. Well, it's a fantastic show. If you haven't seen it, you should absolutely check it out if you get the chance. And if you want to listen to it, you can find it on Spotify or anywhere else where you get your recordings. Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, 
is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on Audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.